So good afternoon. And today we're, even though it's uh, Tuesday, but we're still going to learn some Torah. We're making Monday Tuesday, right? Okay. So many times people have a very interesting question, which is, especially people living in the boondocks, should we live in a place where there's less Jews, less Judaism, less populous uh, opportunities of Jewish things? Or should we graduate to places where there's more opportunities of Jewish things and eventually create a greater Jewish environment and move to those places where are more Jewish? And then the question becomes, what happens to those areas which were less Jewish? And this was a question throughout the ages as, as communities keep on evolving and moving whether it was communities that closed down or communities that opened up or the children getting older, children moving out of town and then the parents want to join with them. And there's always this question, where should I be? Should I stay out there in the boondocks and be the only religious person or the only person that's traveling for hours to get kosher food? Or should I just move to a place which is uh, more Jewish, more religious, whatever it may be? The same question would be when people ask themselves, why did I end up in this place? What am I doing here after so many years? Why, why do I live in this place? And we know that the Baal Shem Tov teaches us one of the greatest lessons of, uh, that we can learn about in Hasidism is the concept of Ashkocha Pratis, divine providence. That wherever a person is, it's by divine providence that they're there. And the very fact that God put you in a specific place in a specific time is that you be, should be there at that specific place and specific time. And nothing is by chance. And the very fact that you live in a certain community in a certain time with a certain denomination and a certain demographics, it's not by chance. And God is waiting for you to fulfill your mission in the place where you are. We read it a few days ago in Ayim Yayim, where it tells us that a chassid's job is to create an environment that where you are is a purposeful reason that you have to create the environment. And if the environment is not, so to speak, as of yet conducive to a religious experience, it's up to you to be able to create that environment. But keeping that in mind, we're going to look into this week's Torah reading. We will read about one of probably a very sorry tale, if you want to look at it that way, or a very dramatic experience that happens in this week's Torah reading, something that changed Jewish life forever. This week's Torah reading skips 38 years, or spans, I should say, 38 years in the desert. Last week we spoke about the second year that the Jewish people were in the desert, the story of Korach, the spies, and so on. This week we go all the way to the end, the last two years of the Jewish people, last year, I should say, of the Jewish people's journey of the 40 years in the desert. And Miriam passes away. And as Miriam passes away, the Jewish people are now thirsty for water. Literally speaking, it's because, as we know, that throughout the Jewish people's travels in the desert, we that Miriam, and the merit of Miriam, the Jewish people had a well, and this well kept the Jewish people going with their water that they were able to drink from and feed their flock. All of a sudden, what happens? Miriam passes away. With that, the water ceases to exist. At the, end of the, at the end of the Jewish people complaining back and forth, God goes to Moses and tells Moses, take your staff, gather the Jewish people around the well of the, all the rocks of where the well of Miriam was, speak to the rock, and the rock shall give forth water. 
Moses speaks to the rock, but as we know, the commentaries explain that the rock of Miriam, which was the well of Miriam, was hidden between them, so maybe he didn't speak to it exactly. And because of that, the well of Miriam did not give forth water when Moshe spoke to it. After Moshe speaks to it once, he hears there's murmuring amongst the Jewish people saying, ah, he's probably looking for the water that's anyways going to be under a rock, so therefore he's going to make believe as if he can bring water from a rock. And with that, Moshe gets upset and he says, listen here, you bunch of rebels, you fools. Do you think that raw water can come from a rock? And with that, he smites the rock, not once, but twice, and water comes gushing forward. And with that episode, all of a sudden, the Torah tells us that is the cause that Moshe was never able to go into the land of Israel. Now, what happened here? Moshe, who was a person who cared for every single Jew. Not only that. Moshe was an individual that from the Jewish people, when they left Egypt, while every single Jew is busy worrying about the wealth and the riches that they're going to get, what was Moshe busy with? Caring for the bones of Joseph that they should be buried to take them with him when they left Egypt. Carry them with him throughout the 40 years of the desert. They carry the bones of Joseph until the Jewish people would come to the Holy Land and bury him in the place where he was taken from initially, the city of Shechem, when he went to check on his brothers. From that place that he was sold to the Arabs, to the Ishmaelim, the merchants that were traveling. Finally, the circle comes to a close. But who was the one responsible for it? it? was Moses. Moses was the one that took and cared for Joseph's bones throughout the 40 years and finally gave it over to Joshua that he should bury it. Because he knew he wasn't going to go into the land of Israel. But why didn't Moshe go into the land of Israel? So the Torah tells us why didn't he go into the land of Israel? Because he made this mistake of hitting the rock. Now, the commentaries, of course, give different uh, reasons. Just because hitting the rock, what did he do wrong? Has anybody tried getting water by hitting a rock? That was a miraculous event as well. That seems to be a great sanctification of God's name and the very fact that he hit a rock and water came out of it. That's no small feat. Why then was that considered something of desecration? Just because he didn't speak to it? So some commentators want to suggest for the very fact that he called the Jewish people fools. That was a desecration of God's name. Maimonides wants to say for the very fact that he get angry. That was his fault. Regardless of what his fault it may have been, whichever commentary you want to take it according to, still in all, what was the big punishment here? Why such a severe punishment? Why not treat Moses the way he treated Joseph? Kindness. He never met Joseph, but he was kind to Joseph and buried him where he came from, followed through on his command. What did Moshe do so terrible? And as we see that Moshe and Aaron, first six months later, four months later, Aaron dies, and then 11 months later, Moshe dies. And they don't go into the land of, Egypt, of Israel. And of course, the question over here is, why was God so severe with Moshe? that he did not allow him to go into the land of Israel. Every single excuse, whatever Moshe tried, every single person, God is so kind, benevolent, apologetic, forgiving. And all of a sudden over here, Moshe, he tells him, take a stick. He told him to speak, 
But then he hit. And because of that, that's it. God doesn't let him in. Not only does God not let him in, but if you look in the verse in the book of Deuteronomy, the second Torah reading in the book of Deuteronomy, Moshe says, And I pleaded with God. And the commentators tell us, if you take the word, it's about 511, I think, times, is the numeric value, that he pleaded with God that amount of times to go into the land of Israel. And he pleaded with God to go into the land of Israel any which way possible, alive or not alive. And the commentators explained that when he said, God tells him, Ravloch, stop it already, don't bring it up again, you're not going in, was because Moshe asked three different requests. First he asked God, can I go into the land of Israel? God said, it's not happening. Then he asked God, you know what, if you're not going to let me in, alive, at least let me be buried in the land of Israel. He said, you're not going in alive, you're not going in dead. He said, God, if you're not going to let me in as a human, at least let me be like an animal that can pasture and eat from the grass. He says, you're not going in, not alive, not dead, not like an animal, not like a bird. Nothing, it's not happening. You're not going in. God told him, this is the decree. You are going to be buried in the desert like the rest of the people who died in the desert. What happened here? What did he do so wrong? How is it that God automatically just sealed off those gates of mercy, benevolence, kindness? This is your faithful shepherd for 40 years, took care of the Jewish people. One slight wrong, and there's no apology? There's no going back? There's no forgiving? Seems a little harsh. So the commentaries give many different ideas of what happened here. And one of the commentators explained and says, taking contrast, Joseph to Moses. And God told Moses as follows. The one that was proud about the land of Israel gets buried in the land of Israel. While the one who is trying to hide his identity does not get buried in the land of Israel. What is this talking about? Who was Moshe involved with making sure he got buried in the land of Israel? Joseph. When Joseph came down to Egypt, what was he identified as? Ivri, the Jew, who came from the land of Israel. When he told the advisor of Pharaoh to remember him in front of Pharaoh, what does he say? Because I was taken from the land of the Jews. He never hid his identity of who he was, how he ended up in the land of Egypt, and what he was about. Until the last very breath of his, that he was able to take, he wanted to return back to the land of Israel. Moses, in contrast, when the daughters of Jethro saw him by the water, what did they report to their father? We saw this Egyptian man standing at the water. Did he protest? He says, I'm not Egyptian, I'm Jewish. I never did. He had no problem being identified as the Egyptian. And with that, he lost that opportunity, so to speak, to identify with the land of Israel. But still, for that one incident, are we going to punish him? It's after the fact we see, maybe. But what happened here? But then there's another Talmud that says something else. Moshe, just last week, had a debate with the family of Korach. Korach comes along and says... I want to be Aaron. I want to be the high priest. 
I want to be the leader. I want to be a Kohen. And he brings 250 Levites together and they say, we want to be a Kohen. What does Moshe respond to them after telling them what their challenges are going to be and says, listen here, you can bring the incense. What does he tell them? Listen here. Rav lochem b'nei levi. Enough. You got enough, the Levites. Everybody else is an Israelite. Everybody else has a system and organization of what they do, where they live and what they have. You guys are already Levites. Korach, you're the wealthiest man in the Jewish people. You got enough. Be happy with your lot. Back off. There's Aaron, there's Korach, there's a Levi, there's a Kohen. Everybody has their job. Don't try to be something else. The Talmud says the same thing. What did God answer Moshe? The same words. When Moshe was praying to God and said, please, 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 400 and 500 times. What does God say? Ravloch, enough. You got your share. What was God telling him? You got your job. You got your purpose. You did whatever you had to do. You were the leader of the Jewish people of 40 years. Your job is to be outside the land of Israel, not in the land of Israel. It's like a guy comes over to somebody and says, the Chafetz Chaim used to give this analogy. A guy is trying to get rid of stuff from his house and he comes over to somebody else. And of course, today you see it all the time. Somebody says, I have this beautiful set of china. It's beautiful. Would you like it? I'll give it to you half price. If I don't need it, that even the half price is a waste. He says, for you, it's a beautiful set of china. For me, it's just another box that I don't need in my house. And even half price is not going to make it worth my value because I have no value in it. What may be valuable for one person is a nuisance for another person. Over here, God was telling Moses, for some people, they need the value of the land of Israel. But the Ravloch, you already have that value. You don't need the land of Israel. Your holiness is not going to get any more improved by going into the land of Israel. Other people need to go into the land of Israel and need that improvement, need that uplifting, need that change of environment to be able to be escalating in their levels of holiness. But you, Moshe, God comes to him in the book of Deuteronomy after he pleads and begs to go into the land of Israel. What does God tell him? Ravloch, you've reached your pinnacle. You've reached your top. There's no going higher. There's no point of you asking to go into the land of Israel because you're not going to get any better because of it. It's only going to be an extra nuisance. But the question is, still and all, what does it mean that Moshe reached this pinnacle and doesn't need the land of Israel? Why couldn't Moshe stay? Why couldn't he also go in the land of Israel? Why did he have to be in the desert? Why couldn't he enter in the land of Israel? And to understand this takes us back to what we started our class about, about recognizing that wherever we are, we're there for a purpose. Everything we have in life has a reason. And any place we come to is because God put us there and waiting for our objective to accomplish its task in that place. What does this mean? Moshe wasn't the only one that stayed in the desert. With him was a generation of people who died in the desert. In fact, not only as people, but they're called in the Talmud, Dordea. A generation of intellects who stayed in the holy, who stayed in the desert and did not go into the holy land of Israel. They died in the desert. 
They were buried in the desert. These were people who stayed in the desert and Moshe was with them when they died in the desert. And not only was Moshe with them when they died in the desert, but it seemed like that Moshe needed to be with these individuals even after their passing. That though they have never entered the land of Israel, and they were buried in the desert, Moshe needed to be with them in the desert where they were buried and to be able to stay with them. What does this mean? As Jewish people, we always look forward and await for the time of the resurrection when all souls of those that have passed on in the previous generations will come and be resurrected. But the question is, what about these people from the time of the generation of the desert? Who is going to say Yisker for those people? Who remembers those individuals, those souls of those 600,000, 60,000, how many Jews, 600,000 Jews at the time? Rabbi Akiva says that that generation of the desert do not have a portion in the world to come and therefore they are forgotten, buried in the ground. But who will remember them for the world in the time of the world to come? Therefore, Moshe had to be with them. In order to remember these Jews that were left in the desert, that entire generation was buried in the channels of the desert. Who's going to remember them? Moshe. Think about Moshe and will then bring about the rest of the desert. The same way that Moshe will be resurrected, he will then be resurrected together with all the other people that were buried in the desert at that time. Only because of Moshe. The Medrash gives a fabulous metaphor for it. Imagine you were to lose a coin in a big pile of garbage. A beautiful, special diamond coin that has great value to you. You make an announcement, who wants to help me look in this pile of rubbish? Nobody's going to come and help you. But what do you do? You drop a few coins in the pile of rubbish. Tell people, hey, look what I found. A gold coin. Everybody says, hey, there's gold coins in this rubbish. Everybody will go digging for it and eventually they'll find yours too. But why is everybody looking in that pile? Because they want to find that one coin that you have there. What's making everybody dig, dig through the garbage? Because of that one coin that you lost there. They actually say an interesting thing, whether it's true to some certain extent. The Kotel, in talking about in the, early, in the late 1800s, early 1800s, the Arabs didn't want that the Jewish people should find it, so they made it a big dumping zone. And everybody from Porta Garbage there tried to cover the whole Kotel Plaza that we know of today. So one Jew came later on and realized what was going on. So he started dropping coins in the piles of garbage and saying, hey, look what I found, look what I found. And meanwhile, everybody, instead of dumping garbage, was cleaning up the garbage there, hoping that they would find coins until the whole place was cleaned up. Mm. But this Talmud telling us something very interesting. The Talmud is saying that because Moshe was buried in the desert, because of that, all the other people were remembered as well. All the other people that were buried in the desert, the rest of the generation would be remembered and they would be coming to the uh, resurrection as well. It's like the lost coin, the expensive coin that's in the garbage. Because of that, you're finding other coins. <coughs> the same idea we also find in general when we talk about Yisker and remembering souls. 
You remember one thing because of that, you come to appreciate a greater picture. They say a story, the Chabad rabbi in uh, Delaware, his name is Rabbi Hani Vogel. So, you know, Delaware is a very small little uh, state, relatively speaking. I think it's the second to the smallest state. I think after Rhode Island's Delaware. Yeah, yeah and Delaware, I think, is more known for all the corporations, for the income taxes, whatever it may be, corporate taxes, but whatever it may be, there is a, so there's Chabad out there. And this fellow says before Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, the people were talking about the Yisker that's going to happen. And one of the people in the class that they were talking about, Yom Kippur asked, and he said, you know, my father was an educator in Jerusalem. And in the Independence War of uh, 1948, he was the one that was responsible for remembering and doing something for the uh, memory of those that were killed during the war. He was the one that did the whole monument to Mount Herzl and whatever it may be. And there were many people who didn't have any family, especially that they came across after the Holocaust or anything else, and they were buried, and there was no mention or nobody knew anything about them because they had no family. And they made a special monument for these unknown soldiers, if you want to call them soldiers without families, whatever it may be. And um, he asked that if this Yom Kippur, Fiyisker, we can mention some of those names of the people that have no family, so like this, they can be mentioned for Yitzchak because there's no family that's going to be mentioned. The rabbi thought that was a brilliant idea and great idea. So that morning, Yom Kippur morning, people submitted their names. And this fellow submitted the names of the people that he remembered from memory that would be able to be mentioned for Yitzchak. The chazan of the shul, his name was Mr. Gorin, took the list of about six to 12 soldiers that he had there and he's holding the Torah in his hand, and he's about to read the names. And all of a sudden, he looks at the list, and it becomes white. And he says, this can't be. They asked him, what do you mean? What's going on? Finally, he got through the Yisker, and he tells them, he tells them what happened. He says, I'm Israeli. My father died in the Six-Day War when, he was 12 years, when I was 12 years old. I don't remember much about my father, but my father used to always tell me a story about a lone soldier by the name of Hanan Gruber, who was killed in the War of the Independence in 1948. He, they were fighting alongside my father. He was fighting, this Hanan was fighting alongside my father. Moments before he was killed, he turned to my father and he said, I'm a lone soldier. If I get killed, who's going to say Yisker for me? Who will remember me? Let me be the one to be killed. Nobody will know. He said, here, the first name on the list of the six people that I was about to say Yisker for was Hanan Gruber. Hmm. Who would have thought that in a little town of Wilmington, Delaware, they're remembering a person who was killed in Israel with 50 years earlier. Maybe even that, not the guy, never knew about the guy. What does this tell us? That God has a plan for where every person is at every single time and at every single place. But what does this mean? That every person in every place, how do we come about it? What does this mean when the Talmud tells us that they're going to be remembered at Moshe because we remember one, you remember the other, like in this case. He was remembering the soldiers, and because of that, he remembered a person who was a lone soldier, maybe not having a family. 
The Talmud at the end of the tractate of Nida, which is one of the last tractates in the Talmud, the last tractate of Talmud, not the one of Mishnah, but the last tractate at the end, the Talmud tells us an interesting story about the people of Alexandria and Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananya. And many of you that came to one of our classes, we have spoke about many of the debates, the great debates that Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananya had with the uh, philosophers of Athens and the agents of Alexandria. What was the people of Alexandria? Well, the Alexandria community is an interesting story. It doesn't talk about the greatnesses of the Jewish people to, per se, but after the great uh, scholar Shimon HaTzadik passed away, he was the high priest for 40 years, he had two sons. His two sons uh, got into a little bit of a fight, if we can call it, and you think only it happens today over the inheritance. Who should replace the father as the high priest? At the end of the day, one son, Chonyai, lost. And because he lost, he was upset, and he moved to Egypt, and he built his own temple, and they called it the Temple of Chonyai. It wasn't the holy temple where they brought sacrifice. A big, massive temple it was called the temple that it was so large. The Talmud talks about that you weren't able to hear the chazan from one side to the other. So in order they should know where the chazan was up to, they had flags to let them know what part of the prayer the chazan was up to. That's how big of a temple it was, such a big place. And it also talks about they were great philosophers. They were very smart. They were very wealthy. And it was a very big place. It was called Alexandria, on the name of Alexander the Great, who then conquered most of the world. And that was one of the very big places as well. Eventually, unfortunately, that community of Jews had a very unfortunate ending when the Ro this Roman Caesar Trinus, Tyrannus uh, was the one that just killed them all after the destruction of the Second Temple. So once the people of Alexandria met the great scholar Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananya, and as you know, as we mentioned, Rabbi Yeshua was a person who was known for debating other thinkers and philosophers of his time. And one of the questions they asked him is as follows. They asked Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananya, the people of the desert, the generation of the desert, and this also has to do coincides with this week's Torah reading. This week's Torah reading begins with telling us about the laws of the red heifer, that if a person becomes impure by touching a dead body or a dead corpse, he then has to be sprinkled with the blood of the red heifer twice in one week, on the third day and on the seventh day. And then on the seventh day, he immerses himself in a mikvah. After immersing himself in the mikvah, he then becomes pure again. We all know that when the time of the coming of Mashiach comes, when there'll be the resurrection, every single one of us will have to be sprinkled with the blood of the red heifer because today we're all impure. So when Mashiach comes, there's one last tenth red heifer which is reserved for the coming of Mashiach and that will be used to sprinkle all the people that are impure. The question that the people of, of Alexandria asked Rabbi Yeshua was, what about the people of the desert? When they are resurrected, are they going to have to be using the blood of the red heifer? And the question was, and what was their question? It's as follows. When we look at the laws of purity and impurity, who becomes impure? Only a person who touches the dead corpse. The dead body itself you can't make impure because the dead body is what it is. So only when the dead body touches something else does it become impure. The question now over here is, the body of the individual, once it's buried into the ground, it, is, it erodes, it rots, and it becomes part of the ground. The only part, as we know according to tradition, that stays 
is the bone called luz. Within the spinal cord, there is a marrow, which is called luz, which is a little bone. And from there, the Talmud tells us that never rots. And that's what God will rebuild the human body when Mashiach comes. And over here, the question is, is the, does, these, um, does this body that's resurrected need to be purified as well? Because the body itself is not impure. It's only if it touches something else that's become impure. So does the body who's resurrected have to become purified? What did he answer? What did Rabbi Shu answer? He answered them two answers. Answer number one, he said, when they're resurrected, we'll ask them, so to speak, they'll enlighten us, is the, is the terminology he used. Second answer he answered them is, when they are resurrected, Moses will be with them. That was his answer. So the question is, first of all, why don't he... What kind of answer is he giving them here? What's their question here? Are they pure or impure? What is he saying? He should say, okay, logically, seemingly, they should or they shouldn't be. He should give them type of answer. He says, when they are resurrected, they'll enlighten us. They will give us the intelligence about it. Or when Moshe will come, we'll be with them. If standard language in the Talmud is something called teku which is an abbreviation for the words that Elijah the prophet will answer the question. If you don't know the answer, there's many questions in the Talmud that we don't know the answer to. And the answer is Elijah the prophet will be the one to answer the question. So why does he say this terminology? Moses will be with them. What does that help me? That doesn't answer the question. And the Rebbe, when he goes through the subject and discusses this tractate, gives an unbelievable outlook and answers this question with a mission statement in life as well, and teaching us the concept that was going on here. The people of Alexandria, let's take into perspective who they were. They weren't fools. They were brilliant people. They were coming from Shimon Atzadik, who was 40 years and served in the Holy Temple. They moved to Alexandria. They were successful entrepreneurs. They weren't just your old people just asking nonsense questions. They're asking a real question. And over here, they're asking a question for a very logical point. And their question is as follows. Rabbi Akiva said, the people who died in the desert don't have a portion in the world to come. Meaning that their souls are gone. There's no way of correcting it. There's something which there won't come to absolute perfection. So how are they going to be resurrected? If they're not in the world to come, they're absolutely corroded or rotted in the, in the ground. What are they? What are they going to be? There's nothing left of them. There's not even a singular bone that you can say they'll be rebuilt like everybody else. So therefore their resurrection, when they come to the resurrection, is absolutely a new creation, a new child. And a new child is not impure. A new child is a new entity, a new person. And therefore, the question is very simply, do we say that they're like everybody else that was initially dead and now, now resurrected from this bone, so therefore, they will have to be purified by the red heifer? Or is it like a new entity? They're new children, because they don't even have a portion of the world to come. And they're going to be by the resurrection. And therefore, 
should we say that they don't need to have this purification by the red heifer? What does Rabbi Yeshua answer them? He gives them two answers. Answer number one, he says, when they will be resurrected, they will enlighten us. He says, when they'll be re-resurrected, we'll look at the reality. They will enlighten us by the very fact that they're resurrected. We'll find out. Was it that they were resurrected from the actual bones, so therefore we'll determine if they're impure, or we'll see that they were a brand new entity. We can't make that judgment now because we don't know. It's a factual thing that we need to determine, and that factual thing to determine will only happen by the resurrection. So therefore, he uses the terminology, when they will be resurrected, they will enlighten us. But then Rabbi Yeshua takes it a step further. And he doesn't just give a second answer, but his second answer is actually all-encompassing and even more than the first answer. What does he say? When they will come, Moshe will be with them. What is this telling us? The Medrash is teaching us a very important lesson. Going back to our original question. Why was Moses buried in the desert? Because when the people of the desert need to be resurrected, those 600,000 Jews that were buried during the 40-year span, how are they going to be able to be resurrected? Only because Moshe is with them. Just like that one coin, that because of that precious coin, you find so many other coins, so too, just because of Moses, all the other people will be resurrected as well. What was, Moshe, what was Rabbi Yeshua answering these people? Rabbi Yeshua was telling them, you're asking me, how is it possible that these people of the people that died in the desert are going to be resurrected if Rabbi Akiva said they don't have a portion in the world to come? My answer to you is because Moshe is with them. And if Moshe is with them, therefore they'll be able, because of Moshe, they will be resurrected as well. And because Moshe is with them, they'll have to be resurrected. Their resurrection is going to be from impure state, and therefore they'll need the sprinkling of the red heifer as well. What Rabbi Akiva was actually telling these people was that it is Moshe's presence in the desert for the last 2,000 years, 3,000 years, that because of him not going into the land of Israel, his sacrifice was, that because of that he was going to be able to bring the Jewish people to the land of Israel. We see this very similar to another episode in the Torah. Think of the episode of when Jacob was dying. Right before Jacob's passing, Jacob calls in his son Joseph, who was the leader of Egypt, and says, Joseph, I want you to do kindness with me. But not just kindness, true kindness. Chesed shel emes, a kindness that is absolute, where there's no payback. And what was that? I want you to promise me, swear to me, you're going to take me to the land of Israel and bury me. So Joseph says, Dad, got my word. He says, no, 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 no. Swear to me. Not only swear to me, I want you to hold an object of a mitzvah so that your swear is concrete, that you're going to do it. He swears to him. His thigh. His thigh, because since it was closest place to his bris, that was the only mitzvah that was given to the Jewish people. And so, Jacob says, thanks him. But not only does he thank him, he gets off his bed, 
and bows down to Joseph in an absolute appreciation for what his son has done to him. What did he do? He didn't even do anything yet. He promised that he'll do what his father asked. What's the big deal? Not only that, what gets a 147-year-old guy to get off his bed while he's sick? He was the first person to get sick before he died. And bow down to his son, which is seemingly the opposite of what a son should be doing to a father. And he thanks him. Did Yaakov not think his son was going to listen to him? Did Yaakov think that Joseph, after all these years, his faithful, only best favorite son was not going to do as he requested, that he needed such an assurance, such a guarantee? But over here, Yaakov was something else. Over here, Yaakov was concerned that, Yaakov, that Yosef would want to do to Yaakov as Yosef requested of himself. Right before Yosef's passing, what does Yosef tell the Jewish people that are in Egypt with him? Paul, there's going to come a time that God's going to take you out of Egypt. And when God takes you out of Egypt, you're going to take my bones with me. He didn't say take my bones now to the land of Israel. He said, after the slavery of 210 years, take my bones with me when you're taken out of Egypt. Yaakov was concerned that that's what Yosef is going to want too. Let the Jewish people, when they take my bones, they'll take your bones too. What was the difference? There was a difference in outlook, in perspective, between Joseph and Jacob in what the role of a leader is. Jacob believed that the role of a leader is to be aloof, higher than the students, higher than the people. They should have somebody to look up to. He should be hanging on the doorpost like we mentioned last week about the mezuzah. Everybody should look up to him. But he is not in the struggle itself. He's above the struggle. Therefore Jacob believed, he says, the best I can do for the Jewish people when they're in Egypt is if I'm in Israel, praying for them. I'm in the holy spot. Yes, they're going to be going through their struggles, but they should have what to look forward to. Joseph believes on the other hand. No. The role of the leader is to be down in the trenches together with the people. Let him fight the war with them. During the evils of Egypt, during the, the terrible times of what's going on in Egypt, I will be with them. When they get out, I'll get out. The captain's the last one that leaves the ship. That was the theory of Joseph. In fact, if you want to think of it, Joseph was not the first one that had this theory. He was going in the ways of his mother. Where was all the other matriarchs and patriarchs buried? In the land of Hebron, in the cave of the patriarchs. Where was Rachel buried? On the side of the road. Why on the side of the road? Because when the Jewish people are exiled, they should have where to pray. She wanted to be in the trenches with the Jews. Joseph followed his mother's ways. And therefore Joseph said, I want to be in the trenches together with them. And because of that, I'm not going to be buried until the very last Jew enters the land of Israel. This exactly was Moshe. Same idea. Moshe was not a leader who led from on high. Was aloof. Had nothing to do with the Jewish people. On the contrary, Moshe was a person who was involved in every step of the way of the Jewish people. And if the Jewish people are buried in the desert, he's buried in the desert. He doesn't leave his flock. Moshe recognized that this is his position. 
This is where you got to be. That if you want the Jewish people to be there by the resurrection, he's got to be there with them. And why didn't he protest? God told him that's what his job was. Initially, he was there with them. He said, I did my job. I was with them for 40 years. I was with them in the trenches. But God said, what about those that died? Who's going to make sure about them? And that's what you got to give him credit. He stopped praying. When God told him, that's your job. God told him, Ravloch, you reached your pinnacle. Your job is to be in the desert. So why, why is the fault for hitting the rock? His How it came about is a different story. I mean, why blame the... It's not about blaming. Every single occurrence in life brings to a situation. It's the same thing, idea, is that what brings a person, and this is very good that you brought that up, is because let's say, what brings us to any situation where we are in life? The step before, the the step before and before. Do we understand the steps? Not always. No. But what it's teaching us is that ultimately where you are, that's your ultimate purpose. You're there for a reason. Don't say, if I would have done something else, I would have been someplace else. Did Moshe say, if I wouldn't have hit the rock, I would have made it in? No. That's what I say. But Moshe never said that. Moshe never told God, God, hey, but look for the 39 years I was good before the rock. That was never his complaint. Moshe said, I want to go into the land of Israel. I want to reach the holiness of the land of Israel. They didn't even ask forgiveness about the rock. Never even mentioned the rock because he recognized there are things that happen in life. We don't go back to them. God said, yes, from now I recognize that we all have challenges. You too, Moshe, have a challenge. We all have situations and circumstances. But that means and tells us that your circumstance tells you that you belong in the desert with the Jewish people until the time of the resurrection. Because it's for you and because of you that the Jewish people that died in the desert will make it to the resurrection. This brings to an interesting, just a side point. There's a question that many people ask. And ask the Rebbe, probably hundreds of times, how come we never moved to Israel? Why didn't the Rebbe ever go to Israel? Why did he, why did he move to Israel? So many people ask, why did he visit Israel? So there's a very long, extensive letter that the chief rabbi of Israel, Rabbi Gorham, documents with the Rebbe, enumerated within the halachic reasons of why he never visited Israel. Whatever it may be, different halachic reasons why he didn't go. But why didn't he move to Israel? And the Rebbe answered many people more than once that if he moves to Israel, what's going to happen when outside Israel? But even more so, the Rebbe looked at it even in a deeper way. The Rebbe never moved anywhere. That means from the Rebbe, from the moment the Rebbe came in 1941 to Brooklyn, New York, to Eastern Parkway, he stayed basically on the same block until the last day of his life. The only place that he went to was the, to the previous Rebbe's Ohel, and twice he went to the camp in the Catskills just for a few days, but then he saw how much time it took, and then he stopped going. Never took a vacation, never went to visit anybody in any other places. Because the Rebbe believed about the concept and the idea. I was put here, we were placed here, and this is where we gotta be to change the world. In the trenches, and this is if God put you here, that means there's a purpose for you to be here. And that's why when people started running away from Crown Heights, when the neighborhood was changing colors and all that kind of things, the Rebbe said, we're here, we're here to stay, nothing's gonna move us. 
And when other Hasidic movements were moving away, the Rebbe was upset at them why they're moving. He said, this is not the, what the Jewish people got to do. We're here, and as long as we have the right and the freedom to be able to practice and do what we have, we got to stay here. We only left Russia and Poland because we weren't given the opportunities to be able to practice the religion, and our lives were in danger. The same idea is also an interesting story, talking about people finding their place, just to conclude with this nice story. There was a fellow who was uh, from Israel originally, and um, the story was told by a shliach who, was in, uh, who met this guy while he was doing his travels. And this guy lives in Israel, but after the army in general, he, was, uh, he lost his way. He grew up a religious family in Yerushalayim, and lost his path, if you want to call it, and started wandering from place to place throughout the different, uh, you know, journeys that he was going on. And he made his way to America. And when he came to America, he saw the land of opportunity, but he thought it was the land of opportunity, but he, through his unfortunate luck, anything he tried, any business he tried opening, didn't work out for him. And he was just down on his luck and all of a sudden, he was traveling from place to place. He would go from synagogue to synagogue looking for some food, finding this thing here to sell. Sometimes he would steal and then sell to be able to survive. Unfortunately, bad times led to worse times. He became an addict to alcohol, drugs, living like a homeless in his car that wasn't even his. And every time his family would contact him, he would tell them America, the land of opportunity, and he would make this whole baloney story of how he's living the high life. And they had no clue. Eventually, real life realized he was a disconnected from reality. But he realized that the game that he was playing was coming to an end. And if he doesn't shape himself up, nothing's going to work out. He finally was able to pull together and get enough money for a ticket to travel back home to Jerusalem. On his way to Kennedy Airport, he said, you know what? Let me stop by the Ohel of the Rebbe and pray. He never did it before. He didn't even, he was illiterate, barely knew how to write. He didn't, he was a dropout of high school. But he sat down, didn't leave out a detail. Poured out his heart, every single detail. The drugs, the alcohol, the loss of money, no luck, anything he tried, everything he put down, A to Z. But after finishing and writing everything, he looked at himself, he was embarrassed. He said, I'm gonna go into the Rebbe with such a report of this who I am. Put his paper in his pocket, got back into the car, went to the airport. Came back home, came to his family, He's telling them America, the land of opportunity, the high life that he lived. He was in denial. He didn't tell them anything that happened to him. But meanwhile, he knew within himself, it's only a matter of days until he finds drugs again and returns to his addiction. A day later after he arrived in Israel, his sister, who's a social worker, calls him up and says, Hey, Allah, sir, we're going out for lunch. He says, Great, no problem. They go out for lunch, his sister tells him, listen here, I know everything. We're going to put you in a special rehab center, and we're going to shape you up and bring you back to life. So he says, how do you know? 
She says, well, you left your laundry to be washed. And in your laundry, in your pants, there was the letter that you wrote to the Rebbe. And we saw it. He went into this rehab, and within a few months, Baruch Hashem, he's back to normal, living a happy, healthy life, just from writing the letter. But what happened? What was it? It's valuing the place where you are, recognizing there's no escape. We think I can go to this place, it'll be better. I'll go to that place, it'll be better. God put you someplace, he put you there for a reason. He's waiting for you to do that reason. And just like God put Moses in the desert because he wanted him to be in the trenches. The Rebbe in America, the Rebbe didn't ask to be married. Many people are buried in Israel. They once asked the Rebbe, how come the previous Rebbe wasn't asked to be buried in Israel? The other Rebbe's, they were in Russia, communist Russia, you weren't able to take to Israel, wasn't like today. But the previous Rebbe, if he wanted, could have been buried in Israel. Or even now, they could have moved it to Israel later. But the Rebbe said no. Because the previous Rebbe wanted to be in the trenches. And what the Rebbe was talking about, the previous Rebbe was talking about himself too. He believed that a leader means to be in the trenches fighting together with the people. Not living in a, what do they call it, in the, in the ivory tower and looking down at everybody else and saying that's the way it's supposed to be. A leader is one who stays on the ship until the last person gets off. And the Rebbe is with us every single time. He's in the trenches fighting with us recognizing and teaching every single one of us, we got our job, we got our place. There's no avoiding it. If you're here, be in the moment. Recognize your mission. Do what you can and make the place different instead of trying to avoid the place. Because eventually, we will all find the right place. When all of us come together, we'll be brought to Yerushalayim, the ultimate place of every single Jew at the building of the Beis Amigdash. We'll see the tenth and final red heifer making us all pure with the resurrection may be now. Amen. Amen. Amen.